And here we are, Cinema Squabble, episode number 97, dangerously close, within striking distance of episode 100. Wah, wah, wah. What we will do for episode 100 still remains hanging in the balance. I know, we've got to come up with something. Something, something, something. Uh, so, who are we? What do we do? Uh, we are a number of Seattle's film critics. We've been gathering in theaters for years, and now we've, and we've been having conversations in theaters for years yeah. over the films that we are seeing. And now we bring you, the public, that conversation, but we're doing it in podcast form. So, uh, I, Adam Gerke, bringing you also Sarah Michelle Fetters, Steve Reeder. We are some of Seattle's critics. Hajime, let's fight. Uh, no, we should, uh, we should have audi- we should have our listeners send us ideas as to what we should do for episode episode one hundred. Uh, <laughs> we can possibly open that up. I'm not see sure. if anybody <laughs> actually responds. I'm sure there and we'll use yeah. a weighted vote. There you go. <laughs> can we do a preferential ballot? We could do a preferential right. ballot, but there we go. We would have to keep the ballots absolutely secret forever, forever, yes. for perpetuity. Yeah, no, nope. nobody nope. could ever see what they actually were. You will understand the meaning of all of this as we get into our discussion of Oscars (laughs) a little bit later on the show. Uh, There are several big films to talk about. Uh, There are? There's like one big film and one one great film and one film that kind of... Yeah, misses its beat, so to speak. So let's start with that one. Bum, bum, bum. Wow. The rhythm section. This came out last week. Did you miss it? Did you blink? It was January... It was it was January, and uh, so the rhythm section. Uh, here's hey, the deal. one of my favorite movies of the year likely just opened last week, though, too. Yes, so January can be good. It's generally a dumping ground, <laughs> and this falls into somewhere into the Kinda, yeah. abyss. Uh, destructive, destitute, desperate might be the words we would use to describe uh, Stephanie Patrick, who's actually Blake Lively. She's lost her entire family in a plane crash, and somehow she's contacted by an investigative reporter who happens to bring her new details about the suspicious uh, happenings behind that plane crash. Turns out it might have been actually not just a crash, but may have actually been bombed. So now on a mission to serve justice with guidance from a former MI6 agent named B. Jude Law. Stephanie assumes the identity of Petra, a lethal assassin with the ability to, well, she's got an exceedingly dark past. And its killer be killed as Stephanie Petra scours the globe, executing all of her responsible parties that but took trying, part in the bar that took part in the bombing, trying to find redemption and looking for an international terrorist. Right. So this is directed by Reed Morano and it's written by Mark Brunell. Mm-hmm. It's a slow to start dragon tattoo esque inspired. Mm-hmm. It's it's inspired by, but it's tattoo esque light release. Which is kind of how I see this. I don't know. Uh, that sets out to be. A lot harder than it ends up being, a lot edgier than it ends up being, a lot more exciting than it ends up being, and it seems to just be scripted mainly of cliches and tropes. Uh, it's unimaginably about an hour and 50 minutes long, I think. Yeah, just don't do that. To me, it felt about like six hours long in there. <laughs> it uh, felt painfully slow. Uh, questionable choices in soundtrack, editing. Uh, oh, I thought the soundtrack was great. N- well, but placement. One, mm-hmm. two, editing choices throughout just uh, Yeah, and no, I'm going like, to disagree there, too, because I think <sighs> that car chase is one of the best car chases we've seen in years. Disagree. Uh, meanwhile, you want to see a good car chase? we got Ford v. Ferrari. Boom. There's <laughs> well, a well-edited yeah, yeah. car chase. <laughs> well, uh, hey, we've got uh, and we've got a certain comic book movie to talk about in a little bit that has a pretty damn good car chase, too, that see, you missed. Yeah, I did. So, but, uh, <laughs> you know what? But I got, I got my reasons. So here's well, the deal. So the way I say this, this is maybe a rental later. But save your coin now, and I think a lot of people probably did. That's where I'm coming in on this. No, I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I'm not even sure it's... 
I mean, yes, I would say it's a rental because I think Blake Lively is actually really good in the movie. Mm-hmm. I think she does a great job of bringing Stephanie to life and showing all of her various complexities. And I like the fact that Reed Morano really plays into the fact that um, Stephanie isn't very good at this. Mm-hmm. No. Um, and, and that's, in a way, part of the point is that as mad as she is and as angry as she is and as inspired as she is, she still has a, has a layer of humanity that doesn't allow her to sort of dial completely in and become exactly what B wants her to. And I like that. Um, I feel like there is a lot of Mark Burnell's book missing. And I think, Stephen, and I kind of talked about that a little bit. And that Yes, we did. One it, of the problems I have with the film is it can't decide what it wants to yeah. be, either on screen or in its marketing campaign. Is it a James Bond-like thriller and with from Bond, the James producers? Bond producers? Is it a form of La Femme Nikita, for example? I kept thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Or is it just a revenge flick, a classic genre revenge flick? It can't decide. And I think that's one of the reasons why there seem to be gaps and plot holes, and really implausible pacing. She acquires her skills from B a bit too readily. And then when we finally, after a lot of of exposition, Mm -hmm. establishing character, taking her through her transformation, it seems like we dispatch the evil conspirators responsible for a family's death awfully abruptly. Yeah, It's it's like, oh my God, it's an anti-climax. But I do think, I mean... Reed Morano, who directed some really killer episodes of The Handmaid's Tale. Won an Emmy um, and a DGA yeah, award for and that. Her, yes. And one of her early films, Meadowland with Olivia Wilde, is absolutely fantastic. There are some really strong moments here. I mean, I actually do think the, the pseudo one-take car chase... I came out of the movie, and I think I told you both, it's like, I can't decide if I love that moment or I despise that moment because it's hmm. just so jarring and, and different. I ended up kind of loving it because it is jarring and different and something we haven't really seen before. And it's purposely discombobulating. And I like the intensity of it. Mm. Um, There are some of these little subtle directorial choices that hint at a much better film. Um, and, and I wonder, it's like, and I haven't read Reed Moran. I mean, I haven't read Mark Brunel's 1999 book. That's the other thing is people should realize this book was written in 19, it was published in 1999. Hmm. People are going to assume this is like some post 9-11 story and it's not. It was actually out a couple of years before that. Um, I feel like in some ways, either the Bond producers or the studio itself just excised chunks of this hmm. be- I, I think so you're saying they had 20 years to make it better and they didn't no i mean he, they didn't and they, they, they gutted it they didn't they weren't trying to make it for 20 years i mean it's only yeah. within recently that they actually put this into production so it's not like well but i mean if a book was written um, in 1999 and somebody wanted yeah, to take, well, a, take a book and make a screenplay out of it they had ample time to do so sure but i mean like the born identity was written what 40 years before the Matt Damon version. Don't get me wrong. There is the Richard Chamberlain miniseries that was made, but it's not like it, you can take your time bringing an sure. adaptation. I mean, that's not a big deal. It's just sure. do a better job at it. You know, well, we've already yeah. talked about the imbalanced script and and some really choppy, awkward editing and yeah. chunks of story that seem to be missing. We do know that, in fact, between and among Blake Lively, mm-hmm. who put her all into this yep. film and injured her hand and so on and so forth, that didn't help. Also, because no. that, that that caused a delay in the production Substantial and the release. Delay. But we do know that between and among the producers Mm -hmm. and the money people, 
some of whom were international, and yeah. Blake Lively and Reed Morano, no one could quite agree on the final cut. Yep. Hmm. And there was a lot of jockeying for position and for structure and for identity to this film behind yeah. the scenes, which doesn't help either. Which, again, is so, I mean, when we talk about our comic book movie later, I think one of the things we're going to agree about is that this is why you give a director free reign. This is why you give them the freedom to make their movie. Because I don't know if Reed Morano got to make her movie. I was going to say, do, what how, what percentage of DNA do you think is Reed in this film and what do you think is not? I don't know. I mean, I think like the car chases, I think a lot of the stuff with, with Blake Lively attempting to get clean and actually really learning about the ins and outs of being an assassin, I think that's potentially what she's interested in. Mm -hmm. The stuff that feels like The Little Drummer Girl or Three Days of the Condor, I think that is very much Reed Morano. Mm. And then the stuff where it kind of becomes a rote, banal, point-by-point, standard espionage thriller is probably the Bond producer saying, hey, we got to punch this up. We can't, you know, we, we got we to gotta give people some excitement. We got to give people <laughs> something more. And, and they're like, no, we want to make a character movie. We're not actually, you know, we're making a 70s style character, hmm. you know, thriller. We're, we're not making a James Bond movie. <laughs> so right. where would you say you sit on this one, Sarah? Uh, it, it's disappointing and, it's, and it doesn't work, but there's aspects of it I like. So I'm definitely a rental, but no, you should not be seeing this in the theater, not even for a matinee. Right. Okay. So, okay, two of us folding laundry watching this. Steve, how about you? I think I will make it three. Okay. One, one of the other disappointments I have about this, I think I will grudgingly agree with Sarah about the quality of the car chase scene, mm. but it reminds me of one of the real deficiencies of the film in that it fails to make adequate use of period, on-location shooting. That that car chase scene was done in Tangiers. But in Marseille, Madrid, and elsewhere, yeah. basically you're introduced to these relatively exotic, beautiful, interesting places, yeah. but they aren't exploited yeah. for any kind of narrative or, or even, you know, aesthetic purpose in hey, the film. say what you will about last year's Ang Lee movie, Gemini Man. There's a lot of bad things we can say about it, and we did on this show. Mm -hmm. It used its locations. Yes, absolutely. You always knew when they were in a cool city, a cool location, Ang Lee went to town to make sure that you got to see an action sequence in that location. This movie, you are spot on, Steve. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Other than the Tangiers car chase, I could care less whatever whatever city or country or whatever we're in. Right. Yeah. It was yeah, I think the uh, the B team went out, shot some externals to uh, show establishing shots yeah. and that's about it. Yeah. So, all Glad right. you brought that up. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to <laughs> Go for it. There, there's a film that's uh, coming out just in time for Valentine's Day. I think that may be, I don't know, even if remotely even, not even, is it appropriate or not for A Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Steve? Yeah, what? Well, <laughs> hell yes. I, no matter how you pose that question, if yeah. you use the word appropriate, my answer is going to be yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Many times over. Yes. By the way, we are in the midst of discussing three films here, yeah. all of them directed by women. Yes. Uh -huh. Produced or co-produced by women. Yes. All of them starring women. Sure. Love all, it. all of your lead actors and one of the three actually shot by a woman. And we're about to talk about that one right now. And two uh, of the three written by women as well. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. Well, this is, were it not for Parasite, mm -hmm. a superior film to be sure, I mean, yeah. of its kind, uh, this would be my choice for the best international or foreign language picture of the year, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is almost an exact translation of the original French title. <laughs> it's made by a fascinating and exceedingly talented French director by the name of Céline Chama. And ever since she started making movies about a dozen years ago, 
with a picture called Water Lilies. Watch some, it. It's amazing. One of the same stars as we have here, Adele Nell. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been making movies about women's desire, mm-hmm. exploration of issues of age, mm-hmm. attraction, sexual liberation and realization, gender fluidity, all from a decidedly feminist point of view, a fascinating point of view, and a very carefully calibrated point of view. So before I'm obviously I... not going to have to add anything yes, to this we'll... entire oh, conversation because Steve's got it all. How, how long is the podcast today? Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, I liked it even more, exponentially more, when I saw it the second time. But let's talk a little bit about the story. It's the late 18th century. It's an island off the coast of Brittany in France. And a... Uh, portrait artist, an artist played by Adele Enel. I'm sorry, she is, sorry, I've got my characters reversed here. Uh, you got them reversed, don't you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Marianne, the portrait artist, is sent to, played by Noémie Erlon, is sent to this island to uh, execute a portrait of a young woman, mm-hmm. played by Adele Enel, Eloise, there you go. who is just out of a convent and about to enter an arranged marriage, subbing for her sister, who unfortunately has passed. Mm under very unfortunate circumstances. The problem is that the young woman about to be married <laughs> is conflicted, to put it mildly, about everything in her life yeah. and about everyone around her and about every aspect of her personality and dynamic and sexuality. Hmm. Let's just say she's not very happy with her mother, played by Valerie Galino. Yes, yes. We have a rich <laughs> array of subplots here, believe me, most of them involving women, fascinating women characters as well. And that is also typical of this director. And so we have a case of a subject who does not want to be captured in a portrait. Hmm. Uh, she is decidedly not interested in that happening. So our portrait artist has to, at first surreptitiously, follow her, observe her, uh, try to make this make into friends. a form. Yes, make friends, make a contact, find some common ground. And, of course, this is where we engage the whole dynamic of female attraction and female desire, hmm. absent men, basically hmm. absent men. What is the female dynamic here? Or the, well, and then throw in the maid, Sophie, too. Yes, we have the maid, which is another really rich yeah. and at times disturbing subplot. By yeah. the way, may I make a, a, a one other quick aside? Uh, I hope this doesn't uh, sort of uh, turn the conversation okay. or pivot it too much. I thought of Little Women when I watched this picture the mm. second time. And this is why. Okay. Even though the stories are very, very different. Both are period stories whose female directors have managed to take period detail with female protagonists and make it seem current and contemporary in the 21st century. Okay. And both of them have done miracles of a job <laughs> in making this happen. What would you say is the driving I, the driving force in this film that brings this to current uh, well, basically, how they... Well, oh, there are many. Okay, here okay, we go. But if there was one or two things that you could say that stood out to you and said, aha. Like, I mean, we could say with Little Women, oh, it was dialogue here, here, and here. We could say these scenes or interactions, and this clearly spices it up. And or you first, know, of, but, first of all, their freedom to make choices, uh-huh. to be themselves, to choose their partners, to choose their relationships without imposition, usually by men. Mm-hmm. Secondly, one of the important visual aspects of the film is that while the characters are wearing period attire and costumes, 1770, their faces are very contemporary. Mm. The makeup (laughs) regime is very contemporary. Their facial expressions and postures are very contemporary to our time. 
And as this director, Céline Chama, has consistently done in her pictures, Girlhood, Water Lilies, and many others in the past 20 years or so, she also gives us a kind of stylized view of her stories and her characters. In other words, it's not sumptuously populated, this castle, where it takes place. What artwork you see seems oddly contemporary to us more than to them. The music also straddles some kind of middle ground between distinctively, specifically 18th century classical era music and a contemporary quality. Uh, Everything about it, the cinematography, the color palette, the music, uh, the performances are very well calibrated. We might point out, just as an aside, that Adele Enel uh, was actually in a relationship with the director Hmm. from the time that she made Water Lilies back in 2007 until just before they shot this film. They are a long-term partnership. They understand each other. They understand what to get out of a story and out of relationships portrayed in the film. Uh, Ironically, this was not and is not France's submission for the Oscars this year. No, Les Miserables. Yes, it's not on the shortlist. Les Mis, which is also very good, but it was nominated for a BAFTA. It was nominated for a Golden Globe, and it is nominated for an Independent Spirit Award for Best Independent Feature Film. And on the last show, you know, my anger at when I was talking about films that it just feels like the Academy just flat out avoided because they didn't feel the need. Sure. This is one of those films that I was talking about. Hmm. I mean, this, Hustlers, a few others, it was just a case of because France didn't bother submitting it, the Academy membership just didn't bother. Because at worst... yeah. At the absolute worst, how the cinematography bench did not even give Claire Mathon a chance to get nominated hmm. is just stunning. Because this is one of the most visually rich films you will ever see. And I don't say that lightly. Mm-hmm. They are really channeling Barry Lyndon here in a lot of ways with their use of natural light. Interior, interior and exterior. Exterior. Yes. This move, and it's all in service to the film. It's not just to show off. It all, every visual and image in this film fuels the characters. Okay, so on that thought then, and I I think I know where you're going to answer on this, looking at the cinematography, and this is not to delve into the Oscar category too deep, who would you have replaced on the nominations uh, for Best Cinematography in this year and and put, you know, portrait of me? I mean... Don't get me wrong, my, my hatred of Joker is legendary, but yes. that's not the one that I would actually remove. And I, okay. I actually and I think I think Rodrigo Preto shoots the Irishman brilliantly, but yeah. that's the one that I would remove. I, I was gonna say, I, I haven't seen the film, but I've I was gonna kill a darling, I'd kill the Irishman. No, I mean both so. I don't really and I love yeah. the Irishman. I yeah. don't really care for either I mean, I really don't like Joker, and I don't really care for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I ain't talking about their cinematography. Right. I mean, both yeah. of those films are shot yeah, they're, fantastically they're, well. I would say the entire list is actually pretty exquisite. But no, I mean, if, if, I had, if I had to lose one, I would probably lose The Irishman. That's the one I would lose in a heartbeat. out of the fact that it doesn't really surprise no. me at all. Uh, so, okay, yeah. but continue. So I would just add uh, that the awards this movie has won have all been well-deserved. Yes. It, won, it won the Queer Palm at Cannes. It won Best Screenplay at Cannes. Uh-huh. It has won a number of acting and, and directing awards since that time. It's on my short list of the very, very best of 2019, certainly in the top 15. And uh, I give it all <laughs> thumbs up. And once again, I would just summarize by saying what I told you a few moments ago. Uh-huh. Adam, just lob me the word appropriate, <laughs> and I will give you weak. 
Yes. <laughs> for a response for well, it, yeah. it, Portrait it, of a Lady on Fire. It was in my top 15 for last year. <laughs> um, I absolutely adored it as well. And the only place why I would disagree with you is my favorite non-English language film of last year was Pain and Glory. Mm. So this would be my number two behind that <laughs> with Parasite just barely right behind those two. But I mean, you know... That's about that's that's really our only disagreement here. Exactly. I mean, for whatever reason, Steve and I ha- have mind melded on this movie, huh. and he just said everything that I probably would have said. Okay. Um, I think Adele Hanel should have been nominated for supporting actress. Um, so you're saying you loved it? I loved it. Oh, not only that, she was just signed by CAA earlier this week <laughs> to get American management. So we'll start really? seeing her in more English language pictures going forward. A very, very talented actor. Ugh, and that uh, means Marvel's going to be calling her soon. Yeah, and just uh, exquisite <laughs> in this room. <laughs> well, so I'm a theater. Yeah. Well, but now hold the thought, the thought yeah. on that because you were sure. saying Marvel's going to be calling. We had a film that's DC based. Yeah. That happens to be Birds of Prey. Sure. Did you want Steve to tell if it was theater or rental? I, on he, that he, or he, said, okay. he said he said he said he's absolutely a theater. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, theater, but I would I would add yeah. if you can't get to a theater, if you're listening to us right now and you can't get to a theater when it opens nationally next week, just see it somewhere, yeah. somehow. Right. And, and so, yes. did you have a word as to how quickly that was going to hit the streaming cycle too? If, if folks wanted to pick it up, stand. It's you know. it's neon, so not not quickly, but they've yeah. all. But I will say that neon has done something they've and Criterion have both done something they've really never done before, and even though there is no release date, sure, both neon and the Criterion Collection have both said that this film is going into the Criterion Collection and it is get is going to be the first neon title getting a Criterion Collection Blu-ray release. Oh, okay. So and normally they do not announce stuff that early. Yeah. So um, they're 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 hedging their bets pretty hard on this one then. Well, I mean, it's just, it's sure. that good. Yeah. It should be. <laughs> well, but I mean, if, if you're coming into it loaded for bear, something, yeah. statement like that, you okay. No, I so. mean, and it's interesting that Netflix just did the same thing, too, with four of their films. They just announced that the Criterion Collection is going to be taking some of those, and we'll talk about them yeah. during our little yeah. Oscar talk. Oscar chat here in a moment. But, but yes, as is... far as DC and our third female-directed film of the weekend... Mm-hmm. Um, Birds, of, Birds prey. of Prey. Tell us about this, because I know nothing about this. The two of you had a chance to catch up with yeah. this. I missed it. Well, and I don't know a ton about it. I mean, as far yeah. as like the backstory and everything, I'm not the comic book nerd. We need we need either John or, or, Tim. or Tim here for that. But what I can tell you is that it is Birds of So Birds of Prey or The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn uh-huh. is a sequel to Suicide Squad. Okay. And it is an actual sequel to Suicide Squad, which is arguably it was a, it the was a, single most loathed that film. A, that was a terrible film. In the DCEU <laughs> at this point. But there, there's a lot, DC screws up a lot of films. But, but they've also but they've been on a pretty good track record in for the, you know, since. Okay. I mean, let's be honest, since then there have been they, a couple they've, corrections. They've, they've yes. done fairly well. Yep. Um Don't know about Aquaman. But I mean, but that one, but that was a giant hit, and the general consensus. Oh, let's is that, not go there again. No, but in the general consensus, the people like it. I mean, I, I get it. Drums. I get it. I get it. Octopus, which drums. is in the comic books. I know. It's um, just. Ugh. But I, I mean, I get it. No, okay. I mean, I'm, all right, all we're, right. we're, we're, but you know, we're, you know, right now we're sort of, you know, just. So birds of prey. Yeah. But the thing with birds of prey is. After Suicide Squad, you're thinking to yourself, "Oh my God, do I really want to step into that world again?" Even though it was a giant hit. Uh-huh. Almost nobody liked it. But one thing people did con- uh, kind of agree on was that Margot Robbie was 
yeah. perfectly cast as Harley Quinn, and they should probably do something better with her. Well, what they did is, in the wake of Suicide Squad, and to a lesser extent, mm-hmm. Justice League, mm-hmm. as we've seen, Warner Brothers has stepped back a little bit and has started allowing the filmmakers to make the movies they've wanted to make. I mean, say what you will about Aquaman, James Wan got to make Aquaman. Say what you will about Shazam, he got, they got to make Shazam. Say what yeah. you will about Joker... Todd I love Phil- Joker. I hated it. Todd Phillips got to make the movie that he wanted to make. And I'm glad he did. But I mean, but so, I mean, yeah. but that has been the shift sure. that Warner Brothers has made with these DC properties. Give, give them some leash to play. And in this case, yeah. they kind of, they basically went to Margot Robbie and said, if you were going to have us do another story with Harley Quinn, mm-hmm. what would you have it be? And it became the comic book attached I mean, it came. It, it she attached it to the comic series Birds of Prey. Okay, Birds of Prey is essentially a comic book about a female team, um, led by the like of Huntress, uh, Gotham detective Renee Montoya, and Dinah Lance, who is AKA the Black Canary. Mm-hmm. What this movie does is it sort of even you know Harley Quinn ends up either she is sometimes a part of that group, and sometimes she's an enemy of that group. It's, you know, traditional comic book stuff. Um, It always kind of depends. But what they did here is by using Harley Quinn to tell her story, they're able to introduce all of these other heroes and set them up for the future. Mm. And she brings in director Kathy Ann, who did this phenomenal Sundance film that unfortunately almost nobody has got a chance to see because it's barely gotten a release called Dead Pigs. Um, And then they got a screenplay from Christina Hodson who got to just basically do what she wanted to do and and be on her own and just work with the director to come up with everything that they were going to do mm-hmm. and they let them make their own movie. Okay. And this movie is an R-rated phantasmagoric freakishly colorful crazy goofy violent beautifully <laughs> staged action heavy extravaganza where the best most sensual most male gaze kind of moment uh-huh. is when Kathy Ann allows the camera to ogle over an egg sandwich. <laughs> Harley Quinn loves her egg sandwich. This movie, I mean, don't get me wrong, the movie's messy, it's a little strange at times, it takes a little bit to get into, but it is an outright joy. And when the Birds of Prey hook up finally at the end and and they all team together along with teenager Cassandra, protecting Teenager Cassandra Kane. A.K.A. the pickpocket. Yeah. Um, when they all team up at the end for the final 30, 40 minutes, it is one of the great moments in a comic book film in recent memory. Um, it is just fantastic. And I was I decided I was over, this moon, over the moon for this movie. I can't even talk about it anymore. But I decided I was over the moon for this film at the moment in the middle of an action sequence where Harley Quinn offers Black Canary a hair tie because her hair kept getting in the way, which you never see <laughs> in an action movie with women, ever. And it was fantastic. I would agree with that. However, okay. we are not in a mind meld on this <laughs> movie by any means. Uh, yes, it is sloppy and messy. Yes, it is brilliantly colorful. And yes, Kathy Yun, who gave us Dead Pigs, for which she won the Best New Director Showcase Award two years ago at SIF, has shown that she's really got range as a director. A Wall Street Journal reporter turned filmmaker, she's got the eye and she's got the directorial chops, I think, going forward. But there are all kinds of problems with this script. Okay. 
the script, by the way, by the same writer as uh, Bumblebee, mm-hmm. which I thought was actually rather cute and yes. clever in its own way as a kind of a Transformers spinoff a year or two ago. The it's problem the is this film. script, to my <laughs> mind, is just too doggone insipid. It's too bland. It's neither dark enough hmm. to match the sort of amoral, nihilistic character in Harley Quinn, who is beautifully embodied and played once again by Margot Robbie, who produced the film, by the way. But it's not witty enough hmm. either. I, I did not laugh at most of the lines. The hairpiece, by the way, is genuinely funny. I wish there had been more of that in the film. And there are occasional laughs. By the way, I'm clearly in the minority. I can report that the, the tone and tenor of the room last night was far closer to Sarah than to moi on this one. The, the script is kind of insipid, and, and I, I almost hate to say this. Well, let's talk about the strengths. <laughs> the art direction and cinematography are sensational. Yep. They are cartoonish in the best sense of the word. The use of pop music, a lot of really good classic pop rock songs. Uh, but careful. in a way that does not feel shoehorned or forced into the exactly. movie. The needle drops actually help the movie instead of stick out. Precisely. And not overmixed, not no. too loud mm-hmm. either, mm-hmm. that they overwhelm the scenes, the action, the dialogue. That is a strong suit. Uh, the acting is generally, generally, I have a huge exception here, Uh-oh. generally very good in the film. I, don't I have like a huge the introduction exception. of the ensemble cast, mm-hmm. although I don't really think we get to know them very well by the end of the film. I do think the last 30 minutes or so, as Sarah suggested, is the best part of the movie. After all of the slapping, uh, sloppiness and wildness and lack of focus and lack of concentration in the script and a lot of really dull lines of dialogue that preceded, it's beautiful. It's atmospheric. I was thinking Wells. I was thinking Jacques Tourneur. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really a brilliant piece of work from well, a directorial and, and point of Ann's view. Well, and Kathy already said, I mean, her, like, one of her chief inspirations was actually Mad Max Fury Road. And yes. I think it definitely shows, especially during the last 30 minutes. Yeah. Now, well, one of the challenges with any of these pictures, for me, we should really have John sure. here to debate know, this right? with us, too, is when I see a, a story that's rooted in the world of graphic novels or comic books, I have to decide, okay, it's going to be cartoonish. It has to be cartoonish. But is it going to be cartoonish in the wrong way? Is it going to lack sophistication? Is it going to lack humor? Is it going to lack plot points? Is it going to lack some kind of engaging, gripping quality that's going to make me think, yeah, I really had a satisfying entertainment? I came away with this a little underwhelmed because I did not sense that. I think it's too cartoonish in the wrong way much of the time. Hmm. And now I come to my big asterisk here. Uh, Sarah has not even mentioned this character yet, Black Mask who's also deeply rooted in the DC universe, played yep. here by one of my favorite male actors of all time, Ewan McGregor. Oh. Now, we're we're going to really disagree here if you this didn't. Is, yes, wow. well, we are definitely going to disagree. This is not only an awful performance oh, no. in a badly written part, it is wow. one of the most embarrassing, arguably the most embarrassing performance I've seen from Ewan McGregor in the past 25 years. He's it's wrong. terrible. It weakens the film because it dilutes the quality and, and, and the wow. compelling aspect of a villain. It's a horrible villain. And by the way, Chris Messina, as his assistant, is equally bad in this movie. Huh. And that really harms, I think, the balance, the texture, the fundamental uh, kind of conflict and adversarial relationship in the movie. We apparently do disagree. We disagree. I, we disagree I, I just felt, I felt more and more embarrassed for Ewan McGregor as this movie went along. It just doesn't work. For does, does, actually, he not, does he just do we do we like him too much from everything else he's done to see him as evil or what? What is what, one, what one final say? thought yeah. before before Sarah slays me on this one? No, no doubt. I'm, I'm, 
I recently happened to see quite by accident a picture made, a Scottish picture made about 15 years ago called Young Adam, mm-hmm. uh, set in Glasgow in the 1950s, in which McGregor is a, deci- I mean, he's just he's an awful, amoral yeah. character, yeah. utterly, thoroughly unlikable, opposite Emily Mortimer and, uh, and uh, Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. But it's a brilliant performance. Yes. Here, uh, granted, I think part of it is the writing, but there's nothing for him to do except chew scenery and and really give just a performance that doesn't register with me at all. In fact, the movie kind of sagged every time he turned up on the screen, whereas it should have mm-hmm. really come together at those moments. And so while Harley Quinn is great and is solid as a character here, spinning off from the Joker and mm-hmm. Suicide Squad, Black Mask, we need to do something about that. Mm. So I will say, and this, I mean, I actually really appreciate... Steve's opinion, and I think his point of view is great, and I loved hearing all that. Um, and I and I will say that just based on the overall critical reaction, he is in the minority on that opinion. Uh, but that clearly. is, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, right. you know, I'm in the minority with not liking Jared Le- uh, um, Joaquin Phoenix and Joker. Sure. And I fully accept that, and I think my reasons for not liking him in that movie are valid. And I think everything I can yeah. completely understand where Steve is coming from. I wholly disagree. I actually think both you and McGregor and Chris Messina are very good in the film. Where I will agree is I don't think the movie utilizes them to their full potential. Hmm. I think there are moments where they could have both become truly great villain and henchman. And unfortunately, the movie is because it needs to focus more on building this 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 group of women, which is great, which is what it should be doing. That should be the focus. It does give the villain a little bit of a shorter shrift than I than I was necess- that I was happy with. Huh. That said, I do think Ewan McGregor. He it, it's certainly it's definitely a flamboyant, cartoonish performance. It's over the top. He's he's eating scenery, but I think he does it very very well. And I actually really liked the fact that. So both both Messina and McGregor have talked about how you know they played it as if the two of them were a couple. Huh. And I actually like the fact that you bought that there was something going on between the two of them. That there was genuine there was some genuine emotion that was there with these two men. Um and I like the fact that the queer coding was not done because they were villains. Mm-hmm. Instead, they were just two queer men who happened to be villains. And there is a huge difference there. Yeah. That I mean, we have had generations where, you know, the the effete bad guy was the bad guy mm-hmm. because he was the effete bad guy. Sure. This is not that. Yeah. This is a genuine relationship between these two guys, and they just happen to be the bad guys. Yeah. And that is a huge turn, and I don't think people are going to quite understand just how monumental a shift that actually is. That it's okay for these vaguely, you know, LGBTQ villains to be bad. That's not, I mean, we are all different human beings. We're all different. We all have different sides. And just because you're gay does not mean you cannot, you can still be a villain. And and I love that about the film. I do think that they are both very good. I do wish the movie would have 
done a little more with them to allow the black masks villainy to really, you know, get under your skin and, and make you, you know, make you angry and make you, you know, genuinely scared of him. I think there's stuff that they could have done better there. Yeah. But I, I do like the performances. Um, but I mean, this is Robbie's film and to a lesser extent, it's also Journey Smollett Bells who plays Black Canary. It's it's her film. And I love that it gives Rosie Perez a showcase because she has not had a showcase like this in ages. Thank you for mentioning her. I haven't seen her in ages, I don't think, on the big screen. And as the police officer turned vigilante, uh, it's it's good to see her as as part of the group. By the way, I I was going to mention, no no spoilers here Mm -hmm. because Adam, among many others, has not seen the film yet. But, you know, you make some really fascinating points about Black Mask. Yeah. So without introducing a spoiler here, it does make me wonder aloud how we carry that forward sure. into the next film in this franchise. Sure, especially when we talk about, you know, because there's there, they do they they do say who Rosie, who, you know, Renee Montoya's former love interest is. Right. And if the I mean, and again, I'm not the comic book excerpt, but we all know Harley Quinn has a very. uh Interesting romantic history. Yes, she does. That goes in a lot of different directions. Sure. Okay. Yes. So to to dance around that carefully, <laughs> Birds of Prey. I'm pretty sure we're looking at theaters from both of you on that. I'm or, a theater. Okay. I don't know if Steve was because yeah. no, you you do need to see it in the theater sure. because it looks sensational. Oh, geez, yeah. Yeah. And with that sound system, it sounds sensational right. too. And our producer Sprints was trying to get me to watch uh, a clip on some of the costuming that is used in this too because she was quite <laughs> so taken amazing. by that as well. So uh, one more thing to be watching for. Apparently. You cannot have the effect of an ultrasonic scream without seeing it on the big screen. I hope that's not anything related to a Technicolor scream. But, uh, no, not, yeah. not at all. Okay. Well, interesting at that. Hey, it is Oscars on Sunday, though. So. It is Oscars on that. And let us talk a little bit about the uh, the world of Oscar. This year, 2020, This I believe this is the 92nd Academy Awards. You are correct. And uh, the nominations this year... Uh, controversial in many regards. We've already Mm -hmm. kind of discussed that uh, to an nth degree. Uh, So they are what they are. Let us, though, kind of chew the fat on what we see in the upcoming here. Because Steve and I had a chance to chat before you uh, got here, Sarah. And um, Steve and I were kind of of the opinion that, you know, we really don't feel there's really going to be a whole lot of upsets or surprises. We were both kind of in agreement that this could be just kind of a yawn year. Yeah, and I, and seen... I don't agree with you without that, so, except yeah. in the acting categories. Okay. The acting categories are over. If there is a surprise in the acting category, it's going to come in supporting actress, just because uh-huh. traditionally that's where it happens. Right. But it's still not going to happen this so, year. The four, we, I think when we make our predictions, we're all going to predict the same people, and those yep. are the people that are going to win. Yeah. But... You know, and I, I was pointing this out. It's like since we've gone to the preferential ballot, mm-hmm. and that has been so originally. Um, and, and let's talk about that because explain to folks what a preferential yeah, ballot. So means. originally, when they went to ten nominees, just a blanket ten nominees, they still did the. You know, they still did. They they originally were just going to do the straight go ahead. You know, whatever wins, whatever gets the most wins ballot. Sure. Um, but when they went to up to ten nominees. And so how that happens is that you have to get 5% of the first place votes during the nomination process, and then the top whatever of those get nominated for Best Picture, and you can have up to 10, which is why we have nine nominees, mm-hmm. and because only those nine films got at least 5% of the first place vote. There we go. A preferential ballot means you get rounds of 
counting votes, not rounds of voting, sure. rounds of counting votes. And what happens is every film gets placed into a stack of where it got first place votes. Okay. And so in the first round, you have nine stacks. Mm-hmm. Whichever film had the fewest first place votes, that stack, so say this time it's going to be, um, you know, uh, Marriage Story. Marriage Story comes in ninth. Okay. Um, so if Marriage Story comes in ninth, all of those first place votes get thrown out. But so that the, when then when they tabulate, they go to what was the second choice. The second choice then suddenly becomes the first, becomes the first vote. So so two becomes one. Okay. Does that make sense? <clears throat> and so now it gets resorted again into the other remaining eight piles, and this keeps happening mm-hmm. until one movie gets fifty point one percent. So with a preferential ballot, you don't necessarily want to be number one. You actually mom, probably want to be two or three. Consistently. Consistently two or three on the majority of ballots. Because if you are consistently two or three on the majority of ballots, it raises you. It's probably sure. going to sort you into the eventual winner. Huh. So, uh, not to mention the fact that if you're, this sometimes happens in this yeah. kind of balloting, if you're number one on a vast majority of ballots the first time around, it may also mean that you're a picture. It becomes a lightning rod. Yep. And you may be at the bottom of the heap on a lot of ballots, too. Exactly. Mm. That's why you want to be consistently high with everyone, be respected by all of those who vote. It's also why you cannot have a tie in Best Picture anymore. I mean, we've never had a tie in Best Picture. Let's sure. start with that. But it's why you can't actually have one now where you can still have ties in other categories. Like when we had the Year of Zero Dark Thirty, you had the tie in... I think it was editing or whatever it was, wherever, I mean, you had a tie there. Um, You can still have a tie in every other category, but not in Best Picture because it's a preferential system and it's whoever gets 50.1%. Sure. Okay. So (laughs) it's all all a numbers game and they can probably calculate this faster than the Democrats can calculate the caucus in Iowa. Sure. Uh, So that being said... Let us uh, take a look a little, a little bit into uh, Best Supporting Actress. Now, you were saying that may be the one uh, category where we may see an upset. We, sure. All, all tea leaves thus far have pointed to Laura Dern for Marriage Story. That's who that. I'm predicting. I'm predicting um, Laura Dern. But Likewise, Kath, yes. Kathy Bates could be in there. It could also be Scarlett Johansson from Jojo Rabbit, Florence Pugh from if some, uh, Little if, Women. If there's an upset, it will be Florence Pugh. Or, or Margot Wabi in Bombshell. If, if yeah. there's an upset, it will be Florence Pugh because Florence Pugh fits... Again, this is where the stats actually can do you some some good. Mm-hmm. She fits the profile of who the upset would actually be in that category based on Oscar history. If you go like to Mar- Marissa Tomei winning and... Um, uh, the wrestler? No. no Marissa wrestler? Tomei won for My a, Cousin Vinny. Sorry, yeah. When she wasn't supposed to. Speaking yeah. of Joe Pesci, yes. Yeah, uh, Mira Savino winning for Mighty After Duty, after Aphrodite, <laughs> after, after, after <laughs> when she wasn't supposed to. I mean, it traditionally, it is it is the younger ingenue that has had a strong sure. couple years that people are really thinking a lot of that kind of comes out of nowhere. And we um, want to validate that you. they want to validate early. Yeah. Um, that this is the category that that would happen. And Laura Dern, she is respected. She is revered. She, but she also kind of fits the Glenn Close model where people yeah. just assume. And she is also on a relatively later in her career role right yep. now too. She's terrific as the mother in Little Women. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's actually the movie I would have nominated her for, to be honest. But um, that aside, I mean, you could see the votes 
changing because people go, oh, Laura Dern's so great. I love her. But she'll get nominated again in a yeah. couple of years. Frankly, though, I think, yeah, this will be Laura Dern's. It's Laura Dern. It's Laura Dern. No, I mean, this is this this yeah. year she's going to win. Best Supporting Actor, we've got Tom Hanks in A Beautiful Day in the mm-hmm. Neighborhood, Anthony Hopkins from The Two Popes, Al Pacino in The Irishman, Joe Pesci, The Irishman, and Brad Pitt, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, Pitt's winning. I think it's Brad Pitt. I cannot see anyone else winning no. in this yeah. category. I mean, j- the way the votes are going to be split elsewhere, uh, yeah. the, the fact that Pitt is well-liked, he just has everything going for yeah. him. This- a lot of people really do. I mean, it, it does seem like the Academy genuinely really loves Hanks in sure. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And they, and you do get the feeling that they are upset at themselves for not having nominated him in like 20 years for some performances he probably yeah. should have been nominated for. Joe Vols- but- versus the Volcano was an award-winning there film. Let's I actually get that- love Joe versus the Volcano. I do too. Gonna- <laughs> but I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying it's like with Captain Phillips and a bunch sure, of... I mean, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but it's Pitt's year. Yeah. And while I think both Petchy and Pacino were eh. worthy for the Irishman, I, w- I totally have no yeah. issue with both of them being nominated. Yeah. If only one of them had got nominated, I'd say we'd have a contest. Sure. But because both of them are there and because they are both so fantastic in that film, hmm. no way in hell. Yeah, and I don't know if it's that they're both so fantastic. I mean, I agree. I think they're great. Mm-hmm. I, I But I think Pitt and the way ultimately he has carried himself through sure. this entire award season, his even his acceptance speeches have been sure. poised to a way that it is very endearing. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I think that has spoken volumes. Hanks already has also been given considerable accolades on his entire career. Sure, but he also so, hasn't been nominated in 20 years, which but, but people he, are upset I mean, about. Yeah, and, I mean, you got to remember. I mean, I mean, I honestly think had if if Pacino had just been normal, good Pacino in Irishman. Yeah. And Pesci was the only person nominated from the Irishman. I actually think I think Pesci would have won in a landslide, only because huh. only because Scorsese pulled him out of retirement for the movie, huh. and he's terrific. Um, and it's just a case of the Academy likes narratives like that. Hmm. And as much as they love Brad Pitt, technically he's won an Oscar already. Yeah. Because he won it for producing 12 Years a Slave. Has Pesci not won an Oscar? Pesci has, but again, he won it yeah. for Goodfellas ages ago, and it's a case he got pulled out of retirement sure. just yeah. to do this film. The Academy loves that. Mm. Um, and there's also, a, you know, there is some, there are whines and moans from a few vocal <laughs> sections of the Academy that this isn't even the best performance Brad Pitt gave last year. Mm. Okay. All right. I'd like to debate that too, but not here and no. now. I know. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah. I, I, I actually do think he was better than Ad Astra, yeah. but I mean, I do. Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great film. But that was a lead but role. That's yeah. also a lead role, and I mean, he's going to win. Yeah. He's so, going to totally win. Best actress. We've sure. got uh, Cynthia Erivo for Harriet, Scarlett Johansson, Marriage <sighs> Story, Shirsa Ronan in Little Women, Charlize Theron in Bombshell, and Renee Zellweger as Judy. I hate this category this year. Tough one, huh? <laughs> not really. I mean, I think Renee Zellweger is going to win in a landslide. Why yep. is that, um, though? Why? And why not Shirsa? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Because, it's I mean... It's a good question. Uh, I, I Because the narrative has already been set, and, and Renee has given speeches that everybody's loved, and she's playing Judy Garland, and again, it's a comeback story, and the Academy loves that. They, and, lo- they love and the they, melding of the vulnerability of the actress in real life yep. and the vulnerability of the character she's portraying at that right? point in her life. It's a perfect combination. And the Academy was making, I mean, there were vocal members of the Academy who were making fun of, um, making fun of her when she had her... Um, medical procedures, mm-hmm. we'll just say that. Yeah. And so they, there is an entire arc 
as to yeah. why Renee is going to win. And I, I mean, she's great. I don't really care for the movie that much, but I mean, she is fantastic in the film. And that was, but that, this, was but that was the thing is that the general consensus from what I recall from everyone was like the film was meh, but she was great. Well, it's Meryl Streep and the Iron Lady. I mean, it's a great performance in a somewhat mediocre. Well, it's movie. true. It's, yeah. it's a classic example. Glenn Close did this a few years yeah. ago too. You'll recall a great performance in the middle of kind of a bland, yep. insipid. Uh, not quite throwaway film, but easily dismissed film. And she with did this lose. one. Yes, yeah. this one really strong mm-hmm. performance. Yes, the narrative is all there. Uh, I would gladly vote for Saoirse. I'm a huge fan of hers. Uh, she's absolutely magnetic. Yep. Uh, she just glows from start to finish in Little Women. But yeah, I, but see, I do the, not see anyone but Renee Zellweger. But see the difference that. between the 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 Glenn Close and Olivia Coleman year is that Olivia Coleman had one. Mm-hmm. A lot of awards for the favorites. Yeah, Glenn Close had also won a lot of awards for the wife. For the wife. Yeah, but the two of them had both won a lot of stuff. Yeah, Renee Zellweger has won everything. Yeah, nobody yeah. has. I mean, nobody. Nobody has entered the conversation. The only person that has come close to even beating her in minor awards was Lupita, Lupita Nyong'o, who's not even nominated. Yeah. Yeah. So the person that had maybe. A chance yeah. isn't here. Yeah, the ghost of a chance. So, um, sure. And that's my problem with the category this year. It's like, I think all five of these women give great performances. I Wait think they're all Did wonderful. Did I hear you say a ghost of a chance? Yeah. 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 Shame on um, you. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this is, I just, I keep thinking to myself how much better this category would be if Lupita Nyong'o was here, if Aquafina was here. I mean, yeah. even if Anna de Armas was here. I mean, there were just, you could have made this category so fantastically interesting instead of just kind of boring. Yeah. All right. Best actor. We've got Antonio Banderas for Pain and Glory. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Adam Driver, mm-hmm. Marriage Story. Joaquin Phoenix in Joker. And <laughs> Jonathan Price in The Two Popes. Phoenix is winning. Yep, hands down. I, again, no contest. Yeah. But this category I found to be considerably more compelling out of the fact that I think every one of these names on here, you could throw a dart on it with a blindfold and say, mm-hmm. yep, sure, I'm happy with that. Well, I mean, I don't think I actually I do think Phoenix does not give a good performance in Joker. I think he gives a lot of performance. Mm-hmm. I don't think he gives a good performance, and I okay. think there's a difference between that. Yeah, but we're, uh, we're at odds on but, that. And, one. And, and I full again, like I said with Steve, yep. you know, our, our Birds of Prey conversation. I fully get. I'm in the minority on that. That's fine. Everybody disagrees with me, but that's yeah. my opinion. Yeah. Um, I will say that Leonardo DiCaprio, had he not won for The Revenant, would be winning this year. You think easily because he has the he has he if he had not won for the revenant then he would still have the narrative of he's due. Mm. Then he gives a brilliant performance in a movie about Hollywood. Mm. That's the easiest way to win an Oscar. Yeah, narcissism I mean, in Hollywood. Sure. Yeah. I okay. mean, so self. And I actually think sure. a lot of people <laughs> yeah. would have rather voted for DiCaprio, but now Phoenix gets the narrative of he's yeah. due, and yeah. the movie made a billion dollars. You can't really. Yeah. The guy I mean, made a billion dollars. No, I mean, it's, you, you know. It's a jump to conclusions, Matt. Yeah. I, um, I, I would yeah. concur. Joaquin Phoenix is going to win, but oh my goodness, if yeah. I could only make Antonio Banderas right? win, because yeah. I think it's the best performance of the five. I totally yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's take a look at best director here. This is the, uh, c- the category that um, kind we- of. Uh, uh, got a couple people's uh, sure. ire up, if we shall but it's say. It's also a category we have a legit con- we have a legit competition. Sure. So we've got Martin Scorsese in The Irishman, Todd Phillips for Joker, doing his best impersonation of Martin Scorsese, <laughs> Sam Mendes for 1917, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Bong Joon Ho for Parasite. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this does become a little bit more of a challenge. It's a two-way horse race. I'm thinking Sam Mendes. 
I think you are probably correct because yeah. it is the more technically audacious achievement. It's and, the, and, it's, and the, it's the it's the dark horse that came in at the end of the race. Well, and the academy likes stuff like that. Sure. Um, so if you are going to have a director picture split, mm-hmm. Sam Mendes has to win. Yes. I mean, if you are one of the people that really wants Parasite to win Best Picture, then you are rooting for Sam Mendes to win. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to flip that script. I'm going to flip that script because of Hollywood history and Oscar history. Because a foreign language, what we now call international oh, sure. picture, has never won Best and Film. Yep, that's mm-hmm. true. And because we can fairly assume, I think, that it will win in the foreign language category, Parasite. Which works against I it. think there are those who might vote as a result for Bong Joon-ho for Best Director. Which is what happened with Alfonso last year for Roma. Knowing so, that mean, his picture can't win, they yeah. will vote for him as director. No, I mean, you're not wrong. I mean, that is... But I think in this case... That's the way it has to go. I think Mendez has to win for Parasite to have a chance just this time. Because that ultimately leads us to Best Picture, of yeah. which we have Ford v. Ferrari, mm-hmm. The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. Yep. That's a lot. It is. But I actually... Th- and what's funny is, again, we all assume it's a two-horse race between 1917 and Parasite. Yeah. That's where I, I would have. That's where I, I would have flipped my coin. Yeah, I think we are wrong on that to one certain extent. That there is a little movie called Jojo Rabbit that mm. is very likely to be second, third, and fourth. Yeah. on a lot of ballots. As much as I love Jojo Rabbit, because I love See, Jojo I Rabbit, I, I liked it. I didn't love it. I'm not. A, I'm not like over the moon on it. But just looking at how people are talking about their ballots and what the the feel of the Academy is, what they really, what really they, enjoyed. It seems like Jojo mm. Rabbit. Mm. Is not going to be everybody's first choice. It could be strong second, third. But it's probably yeah. going to be a lot of people's second, third, and fourth choice. And as we just discussed about the preferential ballot, yeah. that is how you win. Yeah. It, um, so Parasite it, is probably one of those movies that's going to be either number one yeah. or like number six, hmm. which works against it. 1917, that also is a strong preferential ballot contender. Because it could be a lot number one, but it it doesn't feel like a movie that anybody is going to put lower than fourth or fifth. Hmm. My goodness! Well, there are a lot but of good choices yeah. here in my view. I'm still going to go with 1917 yeah. simply because it has that indefinable mo mm-hmm. at this yeah. point. The uh, that je ne sais quoi, if you will, I, for, if we're speaking French. When I wrote, we continue, indeed, yeah. yeah. No, when yeah. I wrote when I wrote my predictions for the Seattle Gay News today, I I flipped a coin and I went with 1917. Yeah. I just, I can't see a foreign language, I can't see a film not in the English language winning Best Picture. I just think, I still think too too much of the Academy, for all the diversity that they've tried to put into it, I think too much of it is still too old, too white, and too xenophobic. Yeah. And the problem is we have had a foreign language picture in that category now the past two years. Mm-hmm. Roma would have been a worthy winner. Sure. And likewise Parasite, but you're right, it's it's a hurdle. Well, and the, yeah. but the it's difference. A but I will say the difference between Roma and Parasite is that Roma was a Netflix movie, and nobody knew how well it actually did. It had no box office to back it up, and there was even though we have a lot of Netflix movies nominated this year, so it seems like the bias is starting to dwindle a little bit. That that's still a real thing. With Parasite, Parasite is a legitimate hit, not like a giant hit. It just passed but, Amelie. As yeah, I mean, yes. but it is it is an actual hit that people know what it has done at the box office, what people think of it, and how long it has played. 
nobody knows that with Netflix movies. And so there is that is a difference between Roma and Parasite that does work in Parasite's favor. Yeah. By the way, just yeah. a, another little postscript. Sure. The black and white version of Parasite <laughs> yeah. is about to open in Seattle. Right. And the director has made it quite clear that part of his vision is changed. In other words, he actually appreciates his black and white version more in certain respects yeah. huh. in terms of delineating class and certain other themes in the story. But that is opening in Seattle this weekend, I believe. I'm wondering I'm wondering right. how that's going to appear if it's going to if you get grittier the darker we go or how does this uh well, he what, supervised it himself, so I'm yes. sure it looks I'm sure it looks amazing. So they, they didn't just take the colorized version and then just no, no, I no, don't no, think no. so. He, no, yeah. he would have. No. He would. He he graded it all and did it all himself. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. This sounds fascinating. I'm kind of curious to take a no, look. I, at this. I'd want to see that too. Yeah. Especially the the rain scenes. Right. I want to know how that's, that's going right. to look. Yeah. Uh, so all right. Well, that kind of that's that's the gist of it. We get an idea, and what people at home now who are putting together their their Oscar ballots Ugh. and figuring out what they're gonna we've we've given them the sneak peek on the top six. Figure out your own for uh, best sound editing and best sound mixing. That's always a seems to yeah, be an Adam, insurmountable what, but task. But Adam, you love score. What's winning score? I was about to oh. say we have to. T- I know. Come I think on. I think score. I got is the two a, music people here. Score is a fascinating category. I'll, I'll let Adam chime in on this it's, momentarily. We've got two yeah. Newmans in there. Yeah. Uh, Thomas and Thomas Randy. And Randy Newman. We've yeah. got Alexandre Desplat, uh-huh. who's become a darling of Hollywood as well mm-hmm. as Europe uh, in yeah. recent years. We've got. The inevitable John Williams. With his yeah. final his, Star Wars score. And yeah. we have yet another Icelandic yeah. composer. Yeah. Iceland has, has really started to dominate this category in the past decade. And yeah. we haven't had a woman win Best Original Score since the Full Monty in 1997. That's right. Hildur yeah. Guanadotter with her cello score, yeah. cello uh, inflected score for Joker. I think she's going to win. I think she's got she's this She's won a number. Yeah. No matter what you think of the though. picture... It's yeah. it's it's a great score. It's a wonderfully evocative, appropriate score. I just find this group of five nominees to be fascinating, fascinating. the way they align. Yeah. Well, especially yeah. it's like Thomas Newman has never won. No. I mean, and this is like his 15th or 16th and that, nomination. That's just He's not never, right. And, and 1917 yeah. is, I mean, the score is an essential part of that film. Yes, it is. Um, and it, and it, I, I will illustrate that, or I'd like to point out that 1917 Thomas Newman's score is, is so actually... I will say almost perfectly executed yep. in the sense that it is doing exactly what a score is to totally. do. It does not draw attention to itself, but it works on you. But then in also talking about like this crazy, this crazy group of nominees. Yeah. One of the scores that Thomas Newman was nominated for and lost mm-hmm. was for Little Women. Yeah. And he's up against Alexander Desplat, <laughs> yeah. who has one and is now nominated for, for Little Women. Little Women. Yeah. Marriage story where you know you've got Randy Newman who is like. Hollywood royalty at this point, who also yeah. went for ages without winning until he finally did, yeah. and then you've got the the, the king. weird well, dark you... horse who's not a dark horse in John yeah. Williams, who could legitimately pull the surprise for Star Wars because one of the selling points is that they've made for getting people to vote for this film is that it's his final Star Wars score. They've made that a huge deal, yeah. and Academy of voters listen to that kind of thing. Yeah. I think we're all in agreement. The, I think Joker is. 85% going to win. Yeah. But it wouldn't shock me if any of the other four sure. walked I, away with I really it. think it does split between, yeah, I'm going to say it's going to split between John Williams and, and Joker, purely out of the nostalgia factor. And there's a lot of silver hair, like I'm, you say, in the Academy. What I think is particularly interesting to me about Joker was the fact that Hilder managed to compose a lot of that score before the film was actually made, uh, which is so counter to the way scoring is done. Usually you sit in a room by yourself and you're watching the celluloid moving by and you get that figured out and you you write your score to the film. They did it the other way around. And that... Uh, it's a little fascinating. I think is is 
that that's a they, they flip the script so no, to speak. But it's one of the it's one of the categories I think is fascinating this year, along with like you know animated feature. Like any of those five could win. Yeah. Um, costumes, any of those could win. I mean, yeah. there's so many fascinating f- storylines this year with some of these categories yeah. that I just. It, that's why I said I just it, other than the acting categories, I don't think that a lot of these are foregone conclusions this year because you can make a case for almost any of the five in their respective categories sure. winning. Yeah, and the, and here here's one one more before we end one more little right. crazy stat. It's very likely unless it wins production design, mm-hmm. it's very likely because I think I honestly think of the ten nominations that it has, it's the only one that it can possibly win. But if the Irishman goes zero for ten. It'll be the second time that Martin Scorsese has had a movie get 10 nominations and, and, get, and get shut out. He will be the only director to have that happen to him twice. Huh. Well, there's a lot of game left to play yet. I know, but so. I, mean, I, I just think that I think that's I think that's I mean one of the most famous directors in Hollywood history and he would he will be on record as having two movies get 10 nominations and come away blank. A hard luck director. Right? I know. (laughs) Well, the review on the 92nd Academy Awards as the 97th Cinema Squabble rolls on. Uh, Just a quick review of what we talked about so far. Birds of Prey, two theater recommendations. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, two theater recommendations. The Rhythm Section, three theater recommendations. Sarah, no, weren't. Uh, it was three uh, rentals. Excuse me, three rentals. Three rentals. <laughs> three rentals. <laughs> and those Thank were, you. And those were yeah. borderline yeah, rentals. Yeah, borderline. I mean, we were not even. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, sorry. <laughs> Good job, though. Yeah. Uh, so, real quick, Sarah, yeah. anything that you're working on at this point? So, my Oscar, my, my Oscar predictions will be live in the Seattle Gay News this Friday, but also on MovieFreak.com. Um, also, probably Friday night. Yeah. Uh, and then my the fourth entry in my top 50 films 2010 through 2019 dropped this week. The top 10 will drop next week. So next Wednesday, check out see what my see what my picks are. For my personal 10 favorite movies of the past decade next Wednesday. And get ready to arm wrestle it out. Exactly. All right. Steve, anything in the hopper for you? Yes, indeed. In my case, it's about Noir City, Uh which begins, (laughs) interestingly, on Valentine's Day. International Noir with Eddie Muller. I'll be chatting with him for Northwest Public Broadcasting and King FM. We're going to talk about how American film noir nicknamed by the French, no less, change the world, (laughs) and how the world, starting with Argentina, puts a whole new spin on femme fatales and all the tropes of film noir. Fantastic. Well, episode number 97 for Cinema Squabble in the books, and uh, figuring out again what we'll do for episode 100, just several away, just tick, tick, tick. It's hard to stop the calendar on that one, shall it it be? But uh, uh, to that end, for Sarah Michelle Fetters, Steve Reeder, I'm Adam Gerke, our producer, Sprints Arbogast. Thanks for joining us. And uh, by the way, one more thought. (laughs) If you get that chance to say, oh, hey, smart speaker, tune in to Cinema Squabble or Cinema Squabble podcast. If you say the whole string there, miraculously, our latest podcast will play. So, Alexa, thank you. Right. Be careful how you, you trigger that. Or you could say, Alexa, send Adam $20. See, do you see how that works? <laughs> that, anyway, food for thought. We'll catch you next time.